0: Hello everybody, welcome to Eat the Blank Page, my name is Victor Rowe and I hope everyone is having a wonderful, wonderful Thursday. (laughs) I know I am, I just got off work, very tired, but this isn't about work, no no no, this is about characters, dun dun dun, if you aren't a writer you might not like this one, but if you are, you will. Give me talking about characters, my experience with them, how to make them, how to define them, what they should and shouldn't be doing, and anything else I can think of, if I'm being honest. We had a very successful launch this past Monday with three. Why do I sound like that? Why do I sound like I'm hosting a carnival? At a very successful launch with all of one person viewing all three of our podcasts. That being something new, ideas, and creepy power creepers. So hopefully, we can keep that trend going. I'm sure everyone will see this one day. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, hey, I mean, you're seeing it now. Or listening to it. Would it be seeing if you're still listening to it? I can't tell, but it doesn't matter right now. I want to talk about characters. Now, characters were something that I couldn't really figure out when I was first writing. And that might sound silly, but it was. When I was writing Doppler House, it was so, it was so purely based on my experience with toxic relationships and an emotionally abusive household growing up. So, when I was making all of the characters, initially, initially, they were all just either parts of me or combinations of people I knew. So... We have the main character, Connor, who is very much just me. When I first defined the plot. When I was first drafting through it, I had a very rough idea of who my characters were. And it actually wasn't until well, for me, late in the development cycle of the book where I found out who my characters really were. It was a wonderful it was a wonderful day. I had been looking up different things about making characters and stories and how characters can work in stories and tropes and all this, all these other things. And one of the things that struck me the most were these lists of questions where it was like, okay, what do they want? What do they not want? And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then I started looking into dialogue. And I'm a big believer that you can learn something from anything. You just need to know how to look. So I was watching a video on writing dialogue for screenplays. And I'll leave a link in the description below. Um, because I'll I'll just find it some um let me make a note of that. So I'll actually do it. But it was really cool. It was very informative. And the guy talked like how I talk. He really didn't he didn't he really didn't care. He was like, yeah, just you know, do this there, this is this. It wasn't some like, yeah, she have to do this and then 40 years later you'll you'll be able to finally write your book <laughs> it wasn't like that at all he sounded like he was 25 and he was saying that the subtext the subtext is what's important it's not what they're saying it's how they're saying it because how they say it relates to what they really want and if two characters are in a conversation that and neither one wants anything that means that the story isn't progressing that means it's a worthless conversation cool i had plenty of reason to believe this guy now because that little tidbit was very useful and i ended up cutting out a few conversations in my book but what it really reinstated or reinformed or you know, you know the word I'm trying to think of. It, that combined with the other piece of a device of what do characters want? What do characters like? All those like questions on characters before. So they kind of combined. And I have this big whiteboard in my office. I don't know if anyone else does this, but I, I'll write goals and objectives and notes for myself and plans and just like daily tasks. I call them daily dragons. Uh, Come at me. I'm a dragon slayer. And... I erased everything, which was, you know, tough, but it was very important. I erased everything and all I had on the board was all the names of the characters, six characters in total. That's the max number of characters in my book. And I wrote down what they really want, honestly, like what's their goal and what do they really want? Um, Kind of like a a combined statement, but I, I split it up to be more specific and I was like okay in this story what is their goal might not always be what they really want case in point here's my main character Connor I thought I knew this guy for about a year and it wasn't until I did this practice where I realized I really didn't know him I didn't and it was so shocking because I thought he was me I thought I thought we were the same guy and it wasn't like I was a self-inserting into a personal fanfic. I'm a sneeze really quick. <laughs> um, wasn't that like a cartoon sneeze? Oh, okay. I'll probably cut that. Um, or I'm standing in front of my board. I've already answered a few other people's wants and goals. And I'm looking at Connors and I'm like, what do you want? What do you want? What could you possibly want? And I'm thinking... And I take about 30 minutes before it hits me. He wants to feel like he's allowed to love something. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to feel loved. He doesn't want all of his problems to disappear. He doesn't want his, his abusive wife to die. He doesn't want her to be replaced. He doesn't want his kid out of the picture. He doesn't even necessarily want anyone to stay everyone could go all he wants is to feel like he is allowed to love someone and for the time before the book takes place he was kind of drip fed this feeling through his dog uh tio t-i-o and that was what kind of like held him on to the really toxic environment and why he put up with so much well, one of the reasons why, but I mean, you mean you're talking about a wife who doesn't do anything, who never leaves the couch, who is so cracked out on meds and alcohol? It's it's unreal, and he stuck around because yeah, he loves her, but this was beyond this was beyond proving a point. It was one of those. It's not. It wasn't love. It was obsession. And even though it was hurting him to hold, it was like a spiky ball of acceptance. It was just like. You know, I I can accept this pain, especially with like the numbing agent of Tio right there, because he was never, because Connor was never able to realize what he really wanted. But despite all that, when I realized that I had to do a whole overhaul of the story. This started my second draft and it was so dialogue focused. It's insane. I started working with subtext. Turns out subtext is super hard, but I tried my best. And I'm about to go over it again soon because now we, now I don't know if you guys have noticed, if you follow me on any of my socials, uh, Victor Rowe stories on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, we at Victor Rowe, uh, in company where I am the sole owner and employee have been reworking the system of content flow for a little bit. And I think we have a pretty good system. And now we're able to start working on the big project, which is the Doppler house, but I digress. When I figured this out, everything changed. He became a person. Now in my mind, it wasn't a puppet I played with on strings. This was someone with free will. This was someone that had ideas that I could talk to in my head that was different from me, which is exactly what I needed. And we can see this in way more detail. God, i sniffing so much. We can see this in way more detail with my character, Benny, who was purely made as a plot device. I mean, Jesus Christ. It got to a point in the story where there wasn't any progression, and I developed Benny as the plot progression. I I believe I talked about this in another another podcast, another episode, I should say, where she started off as a plot device that then grew legs and then grew feelings and then grew goals and stuff. So that was the kind of journey with her. But I also have this short story called... the the lighthouse which i um gave to or submitted to the san miguel's uh writing competition writing convention competition and hopefully i can see that i won uh sometime in november which is super exciting but in that story i wasn't going to make actual people i was making avatars of representation hey buddy Sorry everyone. Uh Cash is interrupting the podcast. Cash is my dog. That you can see if you go follow me on Instagram, because I post pictures of him sometimes. Alright, go lay right down. Go. Go. Go lay right down. All right. Bless you. And what I mean by avatars representation, I'm sure there's a much simpler one word answer for this. Or what I rep or what I mean it to be that I am just lacking the knowledge of where it's not that they're a character, like a person, they're a character, like an idea, like, okay. Halfway through the short story, cause it's only about 3000 words halfway through the short story. It's revealed that the main character's name is ego and th- the man in black who he's been chasing, um, chasing enough to, to swim across a river of sharks. And reach a lighthouse in the middle of a lake whose name is shadow you see what i mean if you're if you don't in psychology and philosophy i'm not sure which one it's more heavily in but you have your ego which is your your personified self and then your shadow which is this other entity within you and becoming whole is part of it like part of becoming whole is like confronting the shadow and if i'm getting that wrong please leave a comment down below please correct me so that i could pin it and everyone can know and i can make a little post saying hey this is what it actually is but from what i researched that was what i was getting at where it's this part of you that's not so much evil but kind of opposite of you and i represented that in the story by having the main character ego be a very young boy who was very trusting and saw the best in people While Shadow was a scared and anxious old man who didn't have any arms. And that was to represent that like he had no real control in the mind that they were in. Even though the setting was a town that encircled a lake that encircled a lighthouse. And Shadow lived inside the lighthouse. And through the story, other characters show up called Curiosity called embarrassment called confidence and everyone has a goal yes but when i was creating those characters it was very much the idea of benny but i never fully developed them i didn't talk about ego wants and needs and desires and whatever i showed how he responds to things he saw a stranger who got chased away by a mob of droning townsfolk who he thought he knew back onto his boat where he somehow rowed away without any arms and he saw that and he was like i gotta see i gotta talk to this guy i gotta see this guy this guy's cool i'm so interested in this guy and he gets he gets to the island and he doesn't shadow doesn't have any arms and so shadow uh puts out his long beard and he's yelling at ego to grab it ego grabs on he pulls him up and shadow knows exactly who this is and why everyone is like hey don't don't talk to shadow and ego's like nah man whatever i'm gonna do what i want and it, it all re- resembles like our internal bias and how like we might not want to neglect the shadow within ourselves but every other part of us does how there's like a natural tendency to shy away from the parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily like or the parts that we don't pay attention to um and so with that those are the real two different kinds of ways i have found developing characters and developing in in terms of having the character in my mind to then put into the story not how to develop them in the story I think I should be more clear with that because I feel like the best way to show your readers who your characters are is to have them do things I had a conversation with someone I work with and we were talking about stories because she's a writer as well and she prompted me with this idea of a whole story that she had written in high school about a cat stuck at home. And so you learn about the homeowners through the cat. And I thought it was cool. And then I started thinking about more of it and I was like, yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if like a bear kicked in the door and it's like, Oh, now you got to deal with the bear. And it could be interesting, an interesting story because, you know, the cat knows the house better than the bear, but even though the bear could like eat the cat, the cat figures out ways to sneak around the bear. And it's all like, Ooh, ah, wow. You know, something's happening. I have a very strong tendency to just make things happen where the people I do talk to about writing at least who are on my my level I've had conversations with people who I have no business talking to and saying that I'm a writer compared to these guys oh my gosh um most notably uh Rami Vance and Nathan Hembrick just to me juggernauts I very intimidating guys but when it comes to people who write for fun And people like me who are trying to get their start in writing, I always see people scared to make things happen. But I only think that is because changing the initial narrative is a frightening thing where, especially if you have an outside influence of someone like, hey, like this should happen. I had this idea for a story where the entire story, like 200, 300 pound pound, page book is all about this prince who's walking down the aisle to be crowned king. And that's all that happens in the book. It's just that it's third person omniscient. So for example, the prince limps one time while walking down the aisle. Oh yes, the prince's limp. A battle scar that he gained in the battle of Tarug and had uh, sliced his leg nearly entirely in half in the king's best doctors had to sew him back together on the battlefield and you don't say that you, you tell the story of the battle and you tell the recovery and you tell all this other stuff to give context to what just happened and then you go right back to the um to the scene so in essence it's one short very short scene with an unbelievable amount of flashbacks And from there, you get context for what's happening. So when the prince finally sits down and accepts the throne, you're like, oh my God, he finally did it. And it was so cool. And like there, I'm so married to the idea that with that same person, we were talking about it, she kept recommending things. And I was like, no, oh what? This perfect isolated ideas right here and i think that is an inherent problem that most writers face if you if you also face that you are not alone trust me but that can also happen with characters it can but in my experience also it hasn't in my story connor has a daughter who for the longest time wasn't really doing much um until the ending but i had an idea that she could be doing things behind the scene that affected the main plot. And when I was developing that, I also had an idea for another character and another character. And this was before I was really writing. This uh, this was still like storyboarding and plotting and stuff. And eventually I just wrote all six of my characters in a circle or a, a hexagon or whichever it would be. And I went, okay, who wants to kill who? And then I wrote out all the arrows in red. I was like, okay, who loves who? Wrote out all the arrows in purple. And I was like, how can I make this more entangled? How can I make every character in here related in some way to another character, even if it is isn't my blood? And so what happened was characters that felt meek, who felt underdeveloped, I found ways to fit them in with other characters to just really tie the story together. And I think that's another thing that characters bring to the table when it comes to storytelling. That they are the ships you use to carry the story. Hunger Games is not Hunger Games without Katniss Everdeen. Right. So if I have my main character who is married to Callie, who who then becomes someone else and has a daughter which becomes friends with this person over here and this person over here is related to these two characters and these two characters are related back to Connor through very unlikely circumstances and then Benny comes in and knows a few people and is hunting the others and now we have this organic kind of web of intent, suspense and drive of the story where I can have any two of my characters in the room together. And there can, there's a conversation that can happen. There's something almost in the sense of it's right. It writes itself because of their relations to every other character and then onto each other where any conversation can happen. So if I need something to happen in my story, or if I enter that wall uh, or that corner that I've written myself into, usually it doesn't take a lot to get out of it because I don't need to go all the way back to the beginning of the story and start working with things there. I can go two steps back instead of 50, correct one decision from one character or one conversation or one motivation, and that then kind of self-corrects everything. Even if I have to go closer to the beginning, that would then set a trigger of certain scenes changing certain motivations later down the road. But instead of needing to do a whole overhaul of power systems and plot, the organic web of characters that I have then developed gets me out of those sticky situations because there's always a conversation that can happen. There's always motivations clashing and that are alike so if i'm having a situation where one character bumps into another and it is literally impossible to not have them see each other how do i get them to not kill each other or how do i get the one to not kill the other and because of those very close connections i can have let's say One of the monsters and one of the daughters, or um, I should say the daughter and one of the monsters pass each other. And if it were actually happening in real life, the monster would kill her. But what if I had her holding something that was related to someone that the monster knew and thus wouldn't be able to kill her and was more curious than anything else? Okay, well, now this is a new scene and I didn't need to do a whole lot to give... The daughter a book or a journal or a necklace or a pennant all i had to do was write and she had a pennant and that's it you've changed the information you've changed the line of motivation and now you're playing with the intents and goals of the characters to best suit your needs where that's much more of like a gardener approach um, i like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle between architect and gardener if you haven't heard of those terms, a gardener writes organically and like uh, Stephen King is one of the best examples where he would just write the story out as it played in his mind and he wouldn't really give any thought to what was happening later in the story. He was just as surprised as everyone else when writing as they were reading because he had no plans while George R. R. Martin, on the other hand, is an architect where every beat is calculated, every scene is written out beforehand and then put onto the page. You can see why they're named thus. So, and it's it's not one or the other, it's a spectrum. You can be like a gardener who likes to build out scenes beforehand. I think if I were to define myself on that spectrum, I would be an architect with my structure, but a gardener with my scenes where when I'm laying out a plot, I have scenes that I have in mind that would lead a a narrative, but when it comes to the scenes themselves, how I do them, what's set in them and not what happens, but what happens is kind of set. But those other two, those are where I garden and I have fun and I'm able to explore different ideas. So perhaps the tactic doesn't really work with everyone else, but in um, in my practice, that's what I've seen that is very well with characters works very well with them having them tightly knit when you're on a very small scale setting uh it's called doppler house for a reason just because it happens in one house so you can't get too many people in there without it being crowded but yeah so that's that it's a very it's a very nice tool if you if you want to steal that one from me it's totally fine To get away from things that I've written, um, I was was more into fantasy and kind of cartoons, anime, anything animated really. And I started seeing certain types of characters be referred to as certain things like the Lance and the big guy, the leader. And I was always curious about what that was. But there came another YouTube video where it was exactly what I needed. And it was basically saying, hey, here are all like, here's the defined five-man band where you have the big guy, you have the Lance, you have the smart one, you have the leader, no no, da, da 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 I didn't really memorize it, but it was a fun watch. I will also leave that in the description. And through learning with that, I think is where I kind of got that idea to keep my party close-knit, so to speak, so that their dynamics can play off of each other. Oh, if you want to use... Here's an example. If, you, if you're having trouble thinking about how to use characters for stakes, the big guy is part of the five-man ban in fantasy settings. So this is the guy who can hit the hardest and take the hardest hit. So this happens all the time. And once I say it, you'll probably go, oh, my God. The big guy goes against the new villain. The villain beats up the big guy, and now the stakes are set. Now the party's like, what do we do? That guy's stronger than our strong guy. And it doesn't, it's not always necessarily the leader and it's not always necessarily five different people, but it can be like two or three people where they act in different roles, but that's much more advanced than I'm able to speak on properly. Absolutely go watch that video in the description. It is a very, very good watch and explains all of this much more than I do, but that's how you can set up stakes purely with characters. The smart guy lost a battle of wits with the other smart guy whatever it's like it's like a scaling thing and just something nice to be reminded of every now and again i touched on it a little bit earlier but characters can also just be created in the weirdest ways because you can always go the route of oh hey like i need some dog here i um pluto there it is there it is it's right there that's a dog Sometimes you're like, hey, I need a mini boss. Okay. And if you're plotting out a longer kind of classic video game kind of plot, and it's like, okay, we're going to have a few mini bosses, and then we're going to have a really big boss who's actually one of three mini bosses to the big, big boss or the big bad. And so you get that natural progression of, Oh, we're going to meet the big... We're going to meet a boss. We're at the boss. We beat the boss. Okay, now we're going to go away. Now we get a tip about another boss, and we're going to the boss. You see what I'm saying? So if you're trying to find mini bosses, that's where you can be like, okay, well, they're mini, but they're still important. So maybe we can put them in a certain setting that reflects what kind of thing we want them to be. We don't even know what they want them to be. Okay, what's scary? What would be cool? What would subvert expectation there's a lot of things you can do um because you're building up to a reveal so you can make it funny you can make it scary you can make it uh on perfectly on theme with the rest of your campaign or you can really do whatever you want but making a character like that requires some more thought to be put into it even if it's just like what species they are if they're sentient or not are they a robot are they a giant lobster Are they another person? How interesting do you want to make them? Because it doesn't always need to be the most interesting, in-depth, thematically appropriate boss or character. Sometimes you can just have a trope character. You can just have a character there to get punched in the face whenever you deem comedically appropriate. And this goes for books, movies, screenplays, whatever. It doesn't always need to be a super specific, super in-depth character that's technically good oh some of my favorite characters are just um tropes that are super like turned up to 11 um brick in tales from the borderlands or just the borderlands games in general he's the meathead he punches stuff and in two they kind of humanize him but all he does is he's like wow yeah. he punches stuff and all his powers are related to punching and it's like yeah yeah it's a character Or you're going to have something like, I can't think of any good examples, but a boss that's very strong, but looks very soft or cute or is not something you would expect to be kind of an end boss kind of thing or a mini boss or a strong character. You know what I mean? No, no, no. I think there's a lot of fun fun things you can do with characters. Oh my God. I didn't even, I I got put off on such a tangent making characters. You can make them in a lot of different ways. Like I just said, but something you can also do with characters is if you can't think of anything, why not just pick a part of you? This is kind of what I did with Connor, where I didn't need to craft some emotionally complex guy because I just took who I was during that hard time of my past relationships. I just took who that was and I put them in there and I'm like, go for it. And did that lead to me having to work on him later? Yes. But as a groundwork and as a frame to kind of put clay onto and mold and to really refine, excellent strategy. There's a saying in writing to write what you know. Now, why does that work? And I promise this makes sense in the end if you just give me two minutes. If you write what you know, there's this inherent complexity to life that we all live where it's so hard to be mundane and simple even if you live a mundane simple life because the house was built by someone you have friends who have history together you have family you all have history together you've you've been through fights you've been through good times you've learned lessons from each other you are a person who's learned lessons who can remember parts of you that you don't like who can remember times when you did things that were wrong, that you learned when you could grow, when you learned what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. There's a lot of parts to you that have been fleshed out and developed by life. No one had to write it down. No one had to brainstorm it. It just naturally occurred. I can't speak today. And so because it was natural, and because you have a life's work of material to work with, anything you choose to write about, well, I shouldn't say anything. Your life, even though it could be on the surface exactly the same as other people's, it is different, and because you're choosing it from you, you are your own expert. You know your life better than anyone else. So, because you're writing what you know, you know your life better than everyone else does. They do not know your life, even though most people try to convince you that they do, they do not. And so if you write an organic piece of writing that has you in it, who has maybe a life story in there somewhere, or a story that has elements of events that you've gone through, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, Doppler house, you can get that deep emotion or that complexity naturally. You don't even need to think about it. An overbearing mother, a neglective father. I'm not saying those are mine. I'm just saying that those are things you can work with. Being a brother, having a sister, owning 25 cats. There's a lot of things you could write about if that is your life. And the only parts that everyone's going to connect with are the natural human experiences, like sleeping or getting sick, but even then, where you sleep or how your family treats you when you're sick is very you and it's unique. So that is why writing what you know is very attractive. It's a very smart thing to do, especially when you're starting off because it does a ton of work for you. You can recall a story you've never written because you've lived through it. And I'm not saying to do a a one-to-one autobiography. I'm just saying if you have a character in your story who's going through something that you've also went through, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to put your own experiences on it and put your own flair onto it. Maybe if you want to get away from what you've experienced, maybe you can just make it something totally different. Fine. But there's a strength in writing what you know. And that's it. It's that people haven't experienced what you've experienced. So what you know, is like a little freebie. It's like, Hey, I've been through this. This is a part of me. And now I put it into this book. Now I put it into a story. Now it's on the stage and everyone's going to look to it and be like, Oh my gosh, my life isn't like that. Oh my gosh, my life's just like that. I can't believe they can say the feelings that I've always thought, but never been able to express so clearly oh my gosh, I never looked at life that way. I can't believe people go through that. Those are all the kind of things that people are going to be saying. So even if they do relate to you, it is going to be refreshing because now they're able to actually see someone else who's going through it or connect to your story. Heaven forbid someone connects to your story, by the way. I I feel like most writers that I talk to don't want anyone to even have an idea of what the story is about. And then... If they don't relate to your story, it's such a unique take on life that they either one hate it, fine. No one, not everyone's going to like our stories, but if they are intrigued by it, this is a whole new thing. This is when I was reading, gosh, I can't even say House on Mango Street because I remember reading it and being like, whoa, oh, Glass Castle. Okay, perfect. I don't know if anyone in here has ever read Glass Castle, but I had to read it as part of my high school curriculum. And her life was so astronomically different than mine with an abusive family, with horrible, horrible things that happened to her, decisions that were made for her, decisions that she made. And I'll leave a link in the description to that book on Amazon or something, Uh, probably with my affiliate link. And if you use that affiliate link, I will also be getting money. I need to say that for legal reasons, but that's a perfect example because I never lived that life, but because she wrote what she knew and to such an entertaining degree, I felt a connection because I was intrigued, not because I knew what she was going through, but because I was so deeply moved by her story and because I was intrigued. I hope that makes sense because like I feel like I've been rambling on for the last few minutes, but I think, th- you know, I think that's what this podcast is. I think it's just me getting passionate about the stuff that I really like and hoping to spark inspiration in those of you who listen to it. And hopefully I do. And hopefully I did that today because we're wrapping up. This is the outro. Everyone get ready for it. If you like what you heard today, which hopefully you did with my incredibly smooth voice and overly sarcastic comments. You can find me on Victor Rowe Stories on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. VictorRowe.com is the name. Quora is the game. I'm on there. I post every day. I answer plenty of questions. I got shorts, vlogs. I do book reviews at the end of each month. The first one coming up is on George Orwell's 1984. Please, if you did enjoy, share with any of your friends, family. Word of Mouth is the best way for podcasts like these to grow and thrive hopefully i can actually start talking to people who would get a kick out of this and hopefully one of those are you one of those are you you are one of those there you go that's how you can tell i do these after work all right everyone but i hope everyone has a wonderful wonderful day and i will see you guys next time yeah